Hi, I'm Andy Murray. Welcome to It's a Customer's World podcast. Now more than ever, retailers and brands are accelerating their quest to be more customer-centric. But to be truly customer-centric, it requires both a shift in mindset and ways of working, not just in marketing, but in all parts of the organization. In this podcast series, I'll be talking with practitioners, thought leaders, and scholars to hear their thoughts on what it takes to be a leader in today's customer-centric world. Hello, everyone. Today, I have the pleasure of speaking with Chris Gray. Early in his career, while Chris was earning his doctorate in clinical psychology, he discovered his passion. He set out to apply his knowledge in psychology to the challenge of understanding the psychology of shopping and consumer behavior. When our paths first crossed over 20 years ago, Chris was one of the first consumer psychologists applying his trade in the field of shopper marketing. He has spent the last two decades helping agencies and CPG companies turn human insights into powerful ideas. And I was excited to get to talk to him about some of his learnings from this journey, including his views on the art and science of marketing, what's going on with our dwindling attention spans, and how we can better use our intuition in developing deeper insights that are at the backbone of the art in marketing. I hope you enjoy our conversation as much as I do. data, AI, and data science have added quite a bit of understanding to the science of marketing. But recent academic research, which I'll publish in a link in the show notes, suggests that some serious limitations to how far the science can really go in predicting human behavior. And with that, more attention is starting to focus on the art of marketing. I asked Chris for his view on the question of art versus science. You know, the question of art and science. I think what we've seen the focus on data the focus on being data driven big data i think the unfortunate side of this is that the art has atrophied to some degree i don't think it's got this has the same respect and value to people right now and i think that will change it's inevitable that it will change because the more we lean into data the more we need the human side of things to connect with our customers to you know create compelling stories um, all of that. And I think that, you know, for me, the art side is the more interesting side, frankly. And uh, I'm looking forward, you know, I, that's part of what I do with my company, The Bicologist, is focusing on deep psychological insights that help companies give get a competitive edge in the marketplace. And I think it is, you know, when we talk about data, data is extremely useful. I don't want to like come down and like, oh, data is not helpful, but it has its limitations like anything else. And what you miss are all the nuances, the stories, the, the interesting parts of life that really give it texture and help you make connections with people. And so, you know, I, I think right now we're at a point where it's been atrophied. The problem too, is that when it's not being utilized, it's not being practiced. And by practice, I mean literally practicing it and developing a skill. And so what ends up happening a lot of times is 
companies will give kind of a half-hearted effort into the art side and then it doesn't pan out. And it's not because the art side isn't valuable. It's because it hasn't been practiced. That muscle hasn't been built up. Uh, and so I think that the more we can continue to lean on both sides and like bring them together in a really integrative way, the more we're going to improve the art side and in, in turn improve marketing as a, as a whole. In my experience, I feel like we've regressed from where we were as far as the art side. And um, it's really unfortunate because I think what starts to happen is everything starts to look the same. We all have the same data, you know. I, I, in fact, I've heard from clients, uh, you know, you and I have been in the, you know, the uh, selling rooms of large retailers many times. And, you know, what I've heard from, from sales folks is, you know, we go in with these, this data, but boy, the retailer had the exact same data. So it wasn't anything interesting. Whereas if they would have taken that data, combined it with some human insight and created a unique perspective, that would have been a very different story. But instead, everyone's playing off the same sheet and you know everything starts to look and sound the same. I did some digging for what I could find on the art of marketing. Sadly, there isn't much there as compared to the science. And what is there lacks common understanding and definition. It's as if that side of the equation was left in the dust. Bend is irrelevant. For me, the art of marketing is a journey built first on mastery. Mastery as informed by the study and humanities that reveal insights on the human condition. It's a quest for the universal stories of our shared humanity. Every practice of the arts first has to be built on a foundation of mastery regarding the elements used in that art. Art can then be produced through an informed intuition. I asked Chris the role intuition plays in the art of marketing. Yeah, absolutely. And, and you know, I think intuition is extremely valuable. But it, like you said, it comes the intuition is natural to us um, because there's so much that happens internally uh, in our minds that we just don't have access to. And so oftentimes we'll get a gut feeling or something that you can't quite explain, but you just kind of have this sense about something. And that happens for everyone. But intuition is also more prone to error. Daniel Kahneman, the psychologist and behavioral economist, he talks about obviously type one and type two thinking. And type one is fast, is thinking fast, and that is more intuitive based. And, you know, he, type two obviously is more slow, rational, analytical thinking. And I think sometimes we think those are mutually exclusive when they're not. They actually work in concert all the time. But developing the intuitive side, it means that it becomes more and more accurate with experience. Because what happens is when you have a lot of experience in a field or not a subject, you start to recognize patterns very quickly. And you compare those patterns to previous experiences, and then you can project forward how this might play out. That only happens with accuracy when you've got actual experience with it. And so, you know, the more you have experience with observing people, of engaging in marketing strategy and tactics, of working in retail, et cetera, the more you're going to have that intuition that's more accurate and more helpful. I think the problem we run into is when we have intuition that's not really based on a lot of experience and we treat it as though it is. And that's really where some things can go awry as far as, like you mentioned, cognitive biases, blind spots, even 
you know, discrimination and those types of things that are unintentional. I mean, so much of this happens beyond our awareness that we have to stop and ask ourselves what's going on here. You know, is this true or is this something that's biased? Is this something I should be careful about? Do I need to think more about this? But intuition, when, when it's used correctly, is extremely valuable. So one of the pitfalls in tapping into your intuition to make new connections is that our intuition is shaped by our own experiences. As Chris states, it takes some work to make sure our intuition isn't hampered by blind spots and biases to the point that it really isn't that helpful. I asked Chris how he approaches shoring up blind spots and biases embedded in his own intuition. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, I think you know, when you are a grad student in psychology, usually it's either required or highly recommended that you be in therapy yourself because there's a tremendous amount of self-exploration that you need to do to be aware of your own biases, to be aware of any prejudices or anything like that, that might affect your relationship with your patients. And, you know, I spent years doing that and I, you know, I still, I, I go to therapy today and I'm not, you know, that's, it's uh, something I find always very helpful, but I think the challenge here is that there's a, there's a term called uh, naive realism. And it's the idea that my opinions, my experience is our, our objective reality. And if someone else doesn't share those opinions or that experience, then I have to somehow think through what that means. And usually what the, what comes out is they're either biased or they're just uneducated. They don't know. So either they're stupid or there's something wrong with them. <laughs> and so, you know, there's, uh, when you think about that from experience, that's a huge barrier to empathy and examining those things and being able to stop yourself. We all, it's something that we all experience. It's just the way we're wired that we think our own experience is the right experience. So whether it's your taste of music or what car you like, or what kind of ice cream you like at some level, you think that's the right answer, you know? And if someone else disagrees, it's like, what, what, what's wrong with you? You don't like chocolate ice cream. Come on. And that's, you know, that's kind of a silly example, but it, it plays out in ways that can be very damaging uh, or at least misleading and cost a lot of time, effort and money from the marketing side. So you're being aware of our own thoughts, our own biases, our own prejudices is really critical to having intuition that is effective. So if it's such hard work to make sure we're getting to a point where we can trust our own intuition just to know ourselves, how can we trust it to really understand and know our customers? and what influences their behaviors. Keep in mind that you will never understand your customer. And I always tie this back to, if you've ever seen me speak at a conference or anything, you've probably heard this story because I tell it all the time because it was, it was so important to me uh, in, in how I developed my thinking. It was my first day of grad school when the, the professor walked into this room full of eager psychology students, you know, waiting to help people. And he pounded his fist on the table and said, you will never understand people. And I just remember like everyone looking around the room at each other, like what? I just <laughs> my tuition. What? You know, like that's what I'm here for. And he said, he continued on. And he said, you know, and the more you're able to accept that, uh, the more effective you will be as a clinician, the more people you will help. And it will make all the difference in how you approach your practice. And it took me a long time to, to really fully get what he was talking about there. But now, I mean, I feel like it has been so influential in my life, which is 
you'll never understand people. Like we, you, we're, it's impossible. You know, the more you learn, the more you will find that you don't know. And it is when we assume that we know the truth, when we think we know everything about a customer, our, you know, segmentation and like, okay, segmentation is done. Don't need to do another one for five years. You've just created some blind spots. You've just opened the door for biases. And some, those lead to big misfires, you know? And I think that something that I would, I always suggest to people, just keep in mind that you'll never know your customer and you have, you, you know, I think part of being in the human sciences is a commitment to continuous learning, just knowing that there's always more to learn. There's always more and more and more. And when you take that approach, when you, when you really can accept like, Hey, I, I need to go learn more. I need to go learn more about my customer. Then that will lead you to great things because you will notice more. You'll be on the lookout for more. You will be open to things that don't necessarily fit with how you think about this person. And you'll be able to incorporate that and develop your foundation of knowledge even more. And that will lead you to the ability to come up with unique ideas, deep insights, things that other people hadn't thought of because you were continuously learning and challenging yourself. And so while I think that segmentation, you know, customer segmentation is a great thing. It can be a help, very helpful guide, but if it becomes dogmatic or if we feel like, as you so often see, as I said, you know, we don't have to do another one for another five years. Well, that's a problem. They can be, you know, customer segmentation is great, but it can lead to a lot of complacency in learning about your customer and the curiosity of your customer. One of the things that has been a consistent experience for me is how often I'm surprised by what customers reveal as you do observational research and you spend time with them. As a clinical psychologist focused on shopper behavior, Chris has done hundreds of interviews, shop-alongs, and focus groups. I asked him if he still gets surprised by what he discovers, surprises that challenged his beliefs in what he thought was true but wasn't. You know, uh, actually, one that really had an impact on me, and it actually challenged some of my own preconceptions, was it was probably the project that most moved me uh, in my career so far. We were doing work with uh, studying Dollar Store, the Dollar Store channel, and we, we did in-home and shop-alongs with uh, moms. And what I realized midway through is that I was approaching this with a bias, with a you know, prejudgment that people shop at the dollar stores because they have to, because they don't have the means to shop elsewhere and that it's not enjoyable or it's not out of preference, it's, it's out of necessity. And I will never forget this moment. We had a mom um, and we met outside of the, the dollar channel or in the parking lot and just talking to her a little bit about, you know, why she shops there and what's about. And she said, you know, I have to be, you know, we don't have a big budget and we don't have a lot of money. So I always have to be the mom that says no. And it's really hard for me to always have to say no to my children and be that person. But when I go here, when I come here with my kids, I can give each of them a couple dollars and they can go crazy and they have the most wonderful experience. They're excited. They have fun. And I get to be the fun mom. And it just really, I'm getting goosebumps just talking about it because it really affected me. It really challenged my own thoughts about what was going on there. So it, it, uh, I think that's a great example. And then that was used. So those insights were then used to create experiences that were really helpful um, and created that joy 
versus just being this arduous task. And that's the thing I love about shopper marketing is you have such a platform to improve people's lives. And, and it, we think of shopping sometimes as something trivial, but it takes up a tremendous amount of our time and effort in life, uh, getting the things that we need and finding new things and, and all of that. And so I think, you know, there's, a, there's an opportunity to continue that kind of work. And it, data is important, but having that capacity for empathy to kind of set aside your own perspectives and, and look at the world through someone else's lens, right? And, and understand from their perspective what's different and difficult. One of the things that really has a big impact that is a misconception is that shoppers can tell us directly what, how they make their choices and what's going on as they shop. I think there's, a, you know, I've done a million shop alongs in my lifetime, and I think they're incredibly valuable. But I think when we take that information too literally, that's where problems can really arise. Because like I said before, you know, there's so much that happens in our minds that we don't have access, we simply don't have access to. And the problem is that we can rationalize it afterwards. So it feels like we know exactly why we did what we did. But that, those are just rationalizations. There's a saying, you know, you're not rational, you're just rationalizing. One of the misconceptions that many marketers believe is that shoppers' minds are always actively in discover mode when shopping, especially in physical retail. The truth is, the more common activity going on in the brain is deselecting which is basically the function of dismissing everything that isn't relevant. As Chris describes it, our brains are very good ignoring machines. Uh, so think about all that uh, you know, sensory information that's coming in that just we're not even aware of um, because our brains automatically just scan it out because it's not relevant to us. And you know, I, I sing it from the rooftops, relevance is the golden ticket. Um, because relevance is what engages people. It's what gets past uh, selective attention, our brains ignoring things. Um, and it's what engages people. If I feel like something is relevant to me, then I will pay attention to it. I may engage with it. I at least have a moment to consider it. If, if you're not relevant um, and you are you know, filtered out with those other millions of uh, sensory inputs, you lose any opportunity to engage that shopper and convince them to buy your product. So relevance really is the key. And I think that you know, there are two ways to get attention. Uh, relevance obviously is one, but the other is disruption. And, but we hear about disruption all the time, right? And you know, disruption is a great tool to capture someone's attention for a moment, for a, literally a second or less. Um, you know, something stands out against its environment. So that's why, you know, ambulances have sirens. That's why school buses are bright yellow. We instantly see them. But if, even if you have a great disruptive campaign or message or sign or package or whatever it is, if the next instant our brain says, oh, I see that, it's not relevant to me. You've lost your chance. Yeah. Um, and so relevance and, and disruption really have to work together to grab someone's attention, and to engage them so that you have an opportunity to convince. A common belief is that it is harder than ever to get people's attention because something has fundamentally changed in human behavior, that we just aren't as good at paying attention as we used to be. I wanted to know if that was really true. 
Yeah, well, it's an important question because, you know, as I said, you know, attention is critically important. If you don't have the attention, then you you don't have any chance of communicating and convincing. Yeah, and this is part of my myth-busting series in consumer psychology. It's a fun one. Um, there's there's this alleged study that I've heard a million times about that says allegedly says that consumers' attention spans are less than those of goldfish today. You know, it, it's it's fascinating clickbait. I mean, it's certainly, wow, that's interesting. I need to learn more about that, right? So I decided to really dig in and see where that was coming from. And what we found out was there is no study that suggests that. Um, there's, there's references to a Microsoft study in Canada. It's weird that, you know, can't like, okay. But that doesn't exist. That In fact, the study that is often referenced does not compare anything to goldfish. As far as I've been able to tell, no one has ever studied the attention spans of goldfish. I'm not exactly sure how you would do that. And just to, you know, avenge the poor goldfish, they actually have memories. There have been studies about memories for goldfish using, using food. They actually have memories that last for months. Oh, <laughs> so, okay. Sorry, Ted Lasso. I know there's a whole episode about, you know, be the goldfish, but that poor malign goldfish actually has a pretty decent memory. I think what's happening uh, it's not that our capacity for attention has diminished. It's that there's just more and more shouting at us in our environments. We have more screens, more ads, um, you know, everything coming at us all the time. And it just seems to continually increase. And so what happens is we end up filtering, again, filtering out so much of that, that it seems like we don't have attention spans as long as we used to. But, you know, if anyone's ever sat down and binged an entire series on Netflix, you know that if it's compelling and interesting enough, you can pay attention for a very long time. And so I think it's it's not that attention is less. It's that the stimulation is more. I asked Chris to go a bit deeper into how we can develop better insights into customer behavior. Here's what he said. Absolutely. And I think that there's a, a misnomer that getting to insights, getting to those real deep psychological insights is there's not a lot of return on investment. Um, like mm -hmm. it takes a lot of time to spend time with people. It takes a lot of money and effort. It, that may or may not be true. I think there's various ways you can do these things, but the difference between data and insight, one of the key differences is that a true deep psychological human insight can last for decades and can be fresh for decades and can fuel really interesting, cool, creative concepts for decades where I often hear, oh, we need new insights. We need new insights. And what they really mean is we need new data. And yes, behavioral data expires very quickly because behavior changes all the time. But the underlying motivations, the underlying aspirations or needs that people have, they're much more stable over time. And so, you know, you think there are research studies that have come up with these amazing insights that have lasted decades. One of the things Chris did early in his journey to understand shopper behavior was to create a mock shopping trip that simulated the real world reality of not just a list of items to go shop for, but also had elements of surprise that brought real world experience into the equation. For example, just before the client enters the store to go execute their predetermined shopping list, they open an envelope and inside would be a note that might say something like, the principal just called and little Johnny's in the nurse's station. You need to come pick him up. So now you have only 10 minutes to execute your trip. Or you just open your heating bill and it's $20 higher than you anticipated. 
you'll need to cut your planned budget for this trip maybe by $10. He called the exercise Shopper Passport. Here's Chris. Well, and honestly, I have to say the creation um, and multiple executions of, of Shopper Passport that we, we did are some of the highlights of my career. And it really came from you, Andy, because, you know, you, you said something that stuck with me and it led to the creation of this, which was experience is undeniable. Mm-hmm. And the idea that, you know, we can talk numbers, we can talk about shoppers being frustrated, we can talk about tough choices, we can talk about limited budgets, but until you step into those shoes and you experience it firsthand, it's not really real to you. But what, so what we did is, you know, and I think now this, there's a lot of this happening now, I think, then I hope so anyway, but we literally created these personas, shopper personas, they, we gave them, you know, lives. We, you know, we brought them to life with not just their demographics, but their, their home life, their challenges, where they had medical issues, where they had uh, likes and dislikes, what their children liked or disliked. And we provided them with that uh, profile. And then we gave them a shopping list that usually had about 10 items or so. And usually, uh, you know, three or four of them were from categories that they, that were uh, from the, the brand we were working with. And then we gave them a budget to actually spend. We actually shipped them off to the store and they shopped just like anybody else, except that they had to shop from that shopper's perspective. And we let them know that when they came back, they were going to have to present to us what choices they made, what they came back with and justify their decisions and talk about their experience. And we had them do it in groups so that they had to talk out loud versus just having this internal conversation. I asked Chris for some practical ways we can improve our powers of observation and intuition. Yeah, there's a few things. I mean, there's uh, around empathy. I mean, I think the first thing is, is take some time to be think through your own biases, prejudices, presuppositions. We all have them. So there's no shame in that. You know, it is, it is more about just being honest with yourself about these things so that you can set those aside. And there's a, there's an activity that you learn um, when you're trained to be a therapist called bracketing. And it's you know, creating this awareness of your own prejudices and those types of things. And then literally before a session, you do this mental image of putting a bracket around that and setting it aside. And it just is a little bit, it gives you a little bit more opportunity to see things with fresh eyes rather than through the lens of your past experiences or biases and those types of things. So that's one to do. And it, it does take some work, but it will help build that sense of empathy. I think too, one thing that I really encourage is when we're thinking about insights, start with the human, not the channel. And I specifically reference that to e-com. The number of times that I'm asked, oh, give me some e-com insights. Okay, well, those are human insights. <laughs> you know, if you start with the human first, there aren't really e-com specific insights. There are, there's e-com specific data, there's e-com specific behavioral knowledge, but when you really get into the deep psychological insight of what people need, what they aspire to, what drives their behavior, that's channel agnostic. Um, now, how you would execute that against e-com would be very different than how you might again in brick and mortar or some other venue. But the insight itself 
doesn't care about your channel. It's, it's the human insight that matters first. So you always challenge yourself to think human first and then go from there. And it's not to say that, you know, e-com data, behavioral knowledge isn't important. It is very important because that is the expression of those deeper insights, needs, and aspirations and those types of things. And how can e-com fulfill that uniquely? That's interesting. That's going to be compelling. But just saying, give me some e-com insights. Like that's, I don't have anything for you there. So that's another one. And then the last thing is, is I encourage just practice critical thinking, you know, um, ask a lot of questions. One of my favorite power questions is, how do you know that? You know, when someone you know says something, you know, gives me a piece of knowledge or a data point or something. I'm like, okay, how do you know that? And, okay, and then you you start from there, and it's like thinking about you know where's the data coming from? What was the study? How what was the methodology of the study? How do they go about getting you know accumulating or collecting this information, analyzing it, and then how do they report it? Because often what I see is. A, a number or a data point or an insight will get thrown around a lot, like the goldfish example, right? If you start to ask questions, then you can get to the bottom of, is this valid? Is it not valid? Is it uh, appropriate for certain situations, but not others? Uh, it helps give you more context for what those numbers mean and, and the insight that you can draw from them. I had a fantastic time catching up with Chris. I particularly enjoyed his insight on the complex relationship between the art and the science that drive marketing today and how that dynamic will shape the future of the industry. Thank you, Chris, for your time and your continued effort to push the limits of customer centricity. That's it for this episode of It's a Customer's World. If you found this helpful and entertaining, I would be so grateful if you could share our show with your friends, and I'd be super happy if you subscribe so you can be updated as we publish new episodes. And if you really want to help, leave us a five-star rating and a positive review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you listen. It's a Customer's World podcast is a product of the University of Arkansas's Customer-Centric Leadership Initiative and a Wilton College original production. 